Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we come before you today with hearts of awe and gratitude. Last week, we glimpsed your glory, mercy, and compassion as we contemplated your redemption and sovereign grace. It is truly beyond our comprehension to understand why you have placed your gracious hands on those you have converted by your Holy Spirit. You set us free from the enslaving forces of our own sin in the kingdom of darkness and set us free so that we might serve you. But beyond that, you didn't keep us at arm's length. You marked us as your own by giving us your Holy Spirit and gave us the ability to cry out to you as Abba, Father. And now your spirit bears witness with our own that we are children of God. Amen and hallelujah. And so we come to you now as your children, still naive in our understanding of the world and all that takes place in it, but with a childlike trust that we can submit our prayers to you and know that you have heard us. This morning we first pray for our world. We pray against the rising tensions between the nations that rage against one another and against you. We pray that you would protect your flock in the midst of this horrific suffering. We ask that you would provide practically but also spiritually for your people in both Ukraine and Russia. Please remind them of their identity in you, that they are citizens of your kingdom, and that they have nothing to fear, not even death itself. We cannot fathom nor claim to understand even a portion of what they are going through. And so we simply pray that you would visit them in their affliction and hold them fast in your hand. Please use them as a light to those around them, that others might see the destruction of the kingdom of darkness and instead run into your loving and compassionate embrace. We know that true peace will only come when you sit upon the throne of this world and all your enemies are crushed beneath your feet. We thank you that this has been inaugurated in the cross and resurrection, and we now pray that it would also be finalized. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in other churches, many of whom were represented by pastors I was able to greet at the conference this week. This morning, we lift up Pastor Matt Jones in the congregation at Del Rey Church in Playa Del Rey, California. We pray for Pastor Jeff Coulter in the congregation at Edgewood Bible Church in Edgewood, Washington. We pray for Pastor Michael Lawrence in the congregation at Hinson Baptist Church in Portland. And we pray for Justin Green in the congregation at Salem Heights Church here in Salem. May their pastors be refreshed in the gospel and fellowship that we experienced this last week. And may their congregations greatly benefit from the spirit of unity in the gospel that is brought back to their churches. We thank you that your church is far greater than this small family of congregants at Mission Fellowship. We also thank you that in a way, your church is fully contained in each and every local assembly of believers this morning by your spirit. May we serve you as you deserve by participating in the ministry of the word and the ordinance of communion in a way that forms us into a compelling community that attracts anyone who looks to us to see you. Lord, we also ask you to intervene in the lives of two young men attached to your beloved at this church. We pray this morning for Tyler Robinson's uh, nephew Cole as he undergoes tests to explain what is happening in his body. We pray for answers and a plan that would assist the medical staff to help him recover. We pray for his parents and extended family that they would be comforted by your compassion and love in the midst of that journey. And we pray for peace for Tyler this morning as he preaches with that on his mind. We pray for Dave and Debbie's grandson, Beck, as he continues to undergo treatment for cancer. Please work in his life and the life of his mother and father so that you might get the glory and draw them tightly to yourself. Please be with Dave and Debbie as they support them and care for them. By your spirit, please hold them all fast in your mercy and grace. And if possible, Lord, we pray for miraculous healing in both Beck and Cole's lives, but we also trust you even when we don't understand, and so we lift them up to your capable hands of healing. Father, we also thank you this morning. We, re we rejoice at the birth of Keone Mahalona. We praise you for hearing our prayers and bringing both Keone and Sierra through the birth safely. We thank you for all the medical staff that assisted and for Anthony's care of his family in the midst. We pray for continued healing and health in their lives and that you would unite Anthony, Sierra, Kailani, and Keone in your spirit in the coming days. Let them be a family that reflects your glory and grace wherever they go. And finally, Father, we also thank you for your word. Who is man that you would be mindful of us and who are we that you would condescend to speak to us and grant us an understanding of your wonderful character? As our brother and elder Tyler exposits your word, we pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to what you have to speak to us today. Please give him your word so that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the Son of God to the glory of your beautiful name. In submission to the power and authority of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.
Amen. You guys can be seated. <clears throat> Thanks for that prayer, Hans. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all, sharing God's Word. And as we continue our study through the book of Revelation this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation 14. That's where we're going to be looking at. We took a brief break for Easter Sunday. We're back there this morning. Now, as many of you know, I've been a teacher at a local high school for the past 11 years, and I've had some interesting experiences there. For the first seven years that I worked there, I was also the boys' varsity basketball coach. Each morning during the season at 5.15 a.m., I would walk into the gym, turn the lights and the scoreboard on, and roll out the cart of balls. The boys would show up half awake, just like their coach, <laughs> grab a ball and start working on their daily drills. And occasionally the athletic director would come into the gym when he came in for school in the mornings and he would watch part of our practice and ask me how things were going. And one morning he came in and he said to me, hey, Tyler, you're missing a couple of your basketballs. I thought, mm, okay, well, this is kind of weird. Now, our, our school only had a tiny athletic budget, so our AD was super particular about just keeping track of every little thing. But it was also important because we only had enough balls in the basket for our varsity players to each have one. We didn't have any extras, so missing a ball was a big deal. I told the athletic director I'd be on the lookout for them, but I had a sneaking suspicion of where I could find it. So that day at lunch, I went down to the gym to see what I could find. See, the gym was open for the students to play basketball during lunch. And of course, uh, there in the middle of the rap ball game at lunch was a new Wilson Evolution basketball being used. Hmm, this is interesting. So I waited until the lunch bell was about to ring, and I saw one of my students, and he said, hey, let me get my ball. So I went over to the student, and I said, hey, that's a nice ball. Where'd you get it? Uh, my parents sent it to me. Oh, your parents sent it to you. That's, that was awfully nice of them. Do you, mind, do you mind if I check it out? It looks like the ones that we use on the varsity team. Uh, sure. So he passes me the ball. And in big Sharpie, on an entire one of the panels, was the student's name written. Now, I'm a bit of a basketball purist, and I know a lot of you really like basketball, but I don't know anyone who likes scribbling in Sharpie on an entire panel of the basketball. So I spin the ball over, and there is a small one inch by about three inch block of solid Sharpie. Hmm, this is weird. I see this black box here. What happened here? Uh, this isn't your ball, is it? No. Okay, well, I'm going to keep the ball, and I'll see you in my office right after school. You see, even high school-aged petty thieves know that putting your mark on something is important to establish ownership. But what they don't know is that once you have the real mark, it is impossible to cover up. We learned a couple weeks ago about the mark of the beast, and today we're going to pick up that thread and continue talking about how God's people, those he has redeemed, carry a different mark. Let's read the text together this morning, Revelation 14, 1 through 5. <clears throat> then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the, his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. You see, I've titled this uh, teaching this morning, The Redeemed and the Mark of the Lamb. Because the point of this passage is to remind the faithful that there are two options. In our study of chapter 13, we were left with kind of this hopeless feeling that the beast is literally going to make things hell on earth for the church. So we might as well give up hope. But this chapter is the reminder that it is not inevitable that we should all succumb to the beast. There is hope, to be sure. 
And we'll see that those who have pledged their allegiance to the Lamb are marked for his service, and they respond as those who have been saved from death. And the first idea that I would like to draw out this morning comes from verse 1, and that is the mark of the Lamb. The mark of the Lamb. Two weeks ago, we talked at length about the mark of the beast. If you missed that message, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. But remember, what we talked about is that the mark of the beast is not a physical marking or trait. It is symbolic of giving our allegiance, giving authority to the beast, and putting our hope in a false gospel. And we see that uh, elsewhere in Revelation and other parts in the Bible. In Ezekiel 9, for example, um, Hans mentioned that in his teaching on Revelation 13, that this is kind of like computer coding. It's a binary choice. You either choose for the beast or you choose for the lamb. There is no middle ground. Either you have the mark of one or you have the mark of the other. So what is the mark of the lamb, and how does one get it, instead of the mark of the beast? Again, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Deuteronomy 6, and the call for God's people to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to teach his commandments and keep them on their hearts and minds. This is the great Shema. God told his people to listen and obey his commands. And that they would be like a little marker on their hands and on their feet and on their head. It would go before them wherever they went. And I want to explore this a little further in the context of chapter 14. But to do that, we actually need to go backwards in Revelation. So would you turn back with me just a few pages to the right to Revelation chapter 3. And this goes back to the teachings that we did on the letters to the churches. And I want to focus on the church in Philadelphia. Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Pay attention to the language here in verse 9 and how it relates to the mark of the beast. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God." Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, Jesus is already priming the church for what is going to come. He's telling them to endure, that there is a reward for their faithfulness. The Lord is taking this church, his true church, and declaring his authority and ownership over it by writing on it the name of God and of Mount Zion and of the Lamb. In other words, if the church is faithful to Christ, they will get the mark of the Lamb. So again, what is the mark of the Lamb? Put very simply, it's Jesus' seal of faithful endurance. Jesus' seal of faithful endurance. So who can get the mark of the Lamb? It says here in Revelation 14 that only the 144,000 get the mark who have taken the name of Jesus. Now, I think this passage that we just looked at in Revelation 3 really supports the view of the 144,000 pictured in Revelation 14 and in Revelation 7 being the fullness of the redeemed, true church of Jesus. And I want to submit to you in humility that there is healthy discussion among scholars about who these people are, but I think Hans did a great job of discussing that in Revelation 7, so go back and listen to that. Uh, but I would certainly invite any, any discussion. I think it's an interesting topic to talk about. But what can be said for certain is that 144,000 is not the literal number of all who will be saved, as seems abundantly clear in other spots in Revelation and the rest of Scripture. God desires that none should perish. And also, as a side note, if I'm a Jehovah's Witness, 
who believe that only a literal 144,000 will be saved to experience the fullness of God's grace, I'm just not loving those odds of me being one of the best 144,000 Christians. I mean, I've bought and sold NFTs, but that premise seems ridiculous just right off the bat. So who gets the mark of the Lamb? The church, the members of God's redeemed people get the mark of the Lamb. And we can get further insight about what this is and what it means by also looking at the location where this scene takes place. God's church is standing with Jesus on Mount Zion before the throne of God. The location here is significant. As we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning from Psalm 2, Mount Zion is the place where God will install his King Jesus to rule over his people. But more than that, we see Mount Zion pictured in the prophet Joel as a place of safety for God's people. Now, I hope your thumbs are warmed up this morning. We're going to slip and slide to a couple different places here in Scripture. So if you want to turn with me to Joel, it's kind of in the middle. Actually, we've got the text up here. That's convenient. Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. And it says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. In other words, it's for everyone. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Joel has prophesied about the coming judgment of the Lord. And he has called God's people to repent. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he restores his people and he provides an escape for them. We see that God is justly executing his wrath on the world, but he has given refuge in Mount Zion for those who call on his name. And we see the beginning of this prophecy playing out at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You're actually going to have to turn there. We don't have a slide for this one. Acts chapter 2. Just to the right from Revelation. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 here to start. Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4 to start. I love the sound of pages turning. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The disciples were gathered together in Jerusalem at Pentecost for the Feast of Weeks, where the first fruits of the harvest would be offered at the temple. And a sound is heard from heaven, something like tongues of fire come down and rest on each one of them, thereby marking each one of them as having the Holy Spirit, the mark of a true disciple. Okay, well, how do we know that this prophecy is fulfilling Joel? Well, Peter tells us it does. He goes on in chapter 2 to quote this very section of Joel that we just talked about, and then he gives one of the most important expositions of Scripture in all of Scripture. Perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached by someone whose name is not Jesus Christ. And it says this in Acts 22. I'll try to get through it without breaking down. It's very powerful. Acts 22, Peter's preaching, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Brothers and sisters, we are fresh off of the remembrance of the first Easter Sunday. We remember God's faithfulness to his servant, our Savior and King Jesus. And we ask ourselves the question, have we done what Peter outlines here to be saved, to acquire the mark of the Lamb, to declare our allegiance to our King Jesus? Now, as members of this church, we have affirmed that yes, Each member has repented of their sins, has been baptized in the name of Jesus into his church for the forgiveness of sins, and has evidenced the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in their lives. But for those of you who may be listening who aren't members, perhaps you have not yet heeded the call of God in your life and something is keeping you from trusting in the gospel. This good news that even though we were dead in our sins, even though we were walking with the mark of the beast on our heads, even though our sin deserves death as a punishment, God sent himself down, his very nature in human form, Jesus Christ, to be the payment for our sin and the defeat of our enemies. And to offer each one of us the opportunity to switch to the winning side to give our allegiance to the Creator God as supreme and to Jesus Christ as our King. And all that is required to receive the mark of the Lamb, according to Peter, is to repent and be baptized. It's not complicated. If you have questions about being baptized and walking through this life with Jesus as your King, please find one of the members here. As I said, they can all articulate the gospel. Find one of us pastors after service. We love to talk with you. You see, friends, what God is doing through Christ is restoring what was lost at the fall of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent. They made themselves the authority. They were not faithful to Yahweh, and they took the mark of the beast. Then, at the Tower of Babel, humanity again conspired against God, to build a counterfeit Mount Zion with the goal to, quote from Genesis 11, make a name or mark for ourselves. God then sees that they do not have a desire to follow him, so he scrambles their language and scatters the people over the earth. Their scrambled language was essentially marking them as having given themselves over to the beast. And from that point, God has slowly been redeeming a people that would be allegiant to him alone. He called Abraham out of a pagan land. Then he called the Israelites out of exile in Egypt. 
Then he preserved a faithful remnant through captivity and exile in Babylon. Then Jesus came and called people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to bend the knee and follow him as king. And from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God has been working in his true church, redeeming a people by the free gift of Jesus' shed blood who are faithful and loyal to him alone. Brothers and sisters, the world around us is longing for true unity. We were created for it. We miss it. The true shalom of God that was present in Eden and will someday be present again in Mount Zion. I was blessed yesterday to sit in the midst of our congregational meeting and I felt the peace of God as I was encouraged by the testimony of the saints and reflecting on the work that Christ has done in this church. You see, the truest picture of shalom here on earth exists between people who have taken the mark of the Lamb. That is the blood and name of Jesus Christ. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that exists in and through the faithful saints that the greatness and the glory of the name is displayed. When we reflect the character of our Savior to each other, we proclaim his glory and his greatness throughout the world. You see, our job is to, as as 1 Peter puts it, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In so doing, we don't beat people over the head. We aren't rude or condescending about it. We simply proclaim the truth of the gospel by our words, our actions, and our relationships. So what is the mark of the Lamb? The mark of the Lamb is the regenerate fruit of the Spirit in our lives as we faithfully endure trials in submission to Christ as our King. And if you are a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church, then the question you need to ask yourself is, do I exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in increasing fashion? If the answer is yes, then you can be assured that you are carrying the mark of the Lamb. If you have not been baptized and joined a local church, I hope you are cut to the heart like the folks that heard Peter preach in Acts 2. I hope this message encourages you and convicts you to repent and to be baptized into a covenant community with a church that preaches the gospel and is faithful and obedient to God's word, whether that's here or somewhere else. Let's turn back to our text in Revelation 14. I'm going to read again through verse 3 this time. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. The second point this morning is redemption song. Redemption song. So all of a sudden, John sees the redeemed people of God standing with the Lamb. And he hears them start to sing. But before the song starts, he hears the sound like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. We've seen already in Revelation that John shares many features of his vision with the prophet Ezekiel. And this section of Scripture calls to mind another section of Ezekiel. So look at the screen what what Ezekiel 43, 1 through 3 says. This is Ezekiel's vision. It says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of God, of the God of Israel, was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when I came to destroy the city. 
And just like, the vision, just like that vision that I had by the Chebar Canal, and I fell on my face. This scene in Revelation uh, 14 echoes what we read in Ezekiel. The sound is the glory of the Lord coming into the temple. The sound in Revelation 14 is the glory of the Lord filling Mount Zion. He also also mentions, Ezekiel does, that it's like the one he had back in chapter 9. And again, that ties into our teaching on Revelation 13. Why is this important? This is the sound that typically accompanies the presence of God. We see the 144,000 here in Mount Zion, the fullness of the redeemed, before the throne, and the throne is not empty. God is there to receive the adoration and praise of his people. And John was possibly drawing on his experience in John 12 as well. John 12, 27 through 32 says this. Uh, Jesus is praying. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What an experience it must have been for John to have witnessed this thundering from heaven saying, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. Then also to have a visionary experience seeing the culmination of this promise. Brothers and sisters, you can trust what God says is true. If he says it will happen, it will happen. He glorified himself in Jesus Christ, and he will glorify himself again at his second coming. The scene in Revelation 14 in the throne room gives credence yet again to Jesus' claim of authority and his ability to forgive us of our sins. Jesus gathers his holy people at the holy place, Mount Zion, and God signals his thundering approval. It is the name of Jesus that seals and saves these people from the beast, nothing else. And the response of the redeemed is a beautiful song of worship and praise to God. Now, there's no text given here in chapter 14, but this is most likely a different angle or continuation of the song that we saw being sung at chapter 5 where the angelic beings and every creature start singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb. And we will see this song being sung again as we continue to circle around the corkscrew. And we see this scene from slightly slightly different vantage points in chapter 15 and again in chapter 19. So the question we're left with then is, Why can only the 144,000 who have been redeemed learn the song? And I would suggest to you that this has to do with the unique experience of redemption that humanity has gone through. God's other creations on this earth have not sinned against him. In fact, the rest of creation is unjustly experiencing the consequences of the treason committed by humankind. Creation is groaning for the redemption of the earth, Romans tells us. It was mankind that sinned against God, and thus it is mankind that needed redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. This is kind of what I've likened it to. I have never given birth, so I'm not qualified, nor could I ever be qualified, to write a description of my experience giving birth. Even though I'm a scientist, it's not possible, it's not natural, and I'm not interested. a 90s Schwarzenegger reference for you guys. (laughs) Without having the experience of dying and having God looking down at me from the judgment seat and feeling the full weight of my sin and death I deserve, and then experiencing the joy, the absolute joy of my salvation as Christ mediates peace with the Father on my behalf because of his innocent blood, because he has put his mark on me then I possibly couldn't know the song of redemption. 
But you see, friends, this is kind of paradoxical because we live in the here, but not quite yet. Those of us who know we are sinners, who know we have been forgiven by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus, we know that joy comes from knowing that our debt has been paid. We've started already to learn the melody to this song. Paul says in Corinthians that, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. When we die, we will share the experience with all those who have gone before us. But for the living, we picture that death and the passing through the waters of judgment and rising again as one of God's redeemed through baptism. If you have been baptized as Christ commanded, you have proclaimed to the world that your old self, the one bearing the mark of the beast, is dead, crucified with Christ on the cross, and your new self, the one sealed with the mark of the Lamb, has risen to walk in newness of life. We who have been redeemed will join with our brothers and sisters in giving glory to God and worshiping our King. So the call for us today is to continue to practice and singing praises to our King. This is some really low-hanging fruit, but it needs to be said. How thankful every one of this church should be that it only mentions singing and not clapping on beat. Sick burn to all of us. You see, we are called to give our worship and our joyous praise to God as a response to the saving work he's done for us eternally, regardless of what our present circumstances look like. Now, I must confess to you all this morning, even as Hans prayed this morning, that these past weeks have been tremendously difficult to do consistently. In the midst of stressful situations with work, difficult medical diagnosis in my family, and praying for the difficult circumstances that members of this church are experiencing, I have found myself asking God, where are you? The chaos monster seems to be winning in my life. And maybe you've had a season like that recently. Or maybe you're like me and you're sort of right in the middle of it. Where none of your plans seem to work out. Everything you do seems to be a struggle. And even the things that usually bring you happiness leave you feeling flat. And you're just exhausted from the fight. For me, it has truly been a discipline in the past weeks to make a joyful noise to the Lord, to sing songs of praise and glory in my heart and with my family in worship. And honestly, my most peaceful moments over the past couple months have been sitting in the midst of this body, Listening to people that I love remind me of God's faithfulness through song. I have found great hope and joy in the songs that we sing together on Sunday mornings. We don't realize it as much in the moment, but when we sing together, we are also singing for one another. This is part of bearing one another's burdens. When I feel burdened, when I come into the sanctuary and I don't have the energy to lift my voice, I can hear the chorus of saints singing all around me. And my eyes and my heart are directed toward the glory of my King. And even in my sadness, I am filled with hope, eternal hope and joy. One of our favorite family worship songs was penned by Samuel Francis in 1875 as he reflected on a moment from his youth where he was contemplating suicide. 
It says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Friends, as we sing out this morning at the end of service, realize that you are the current of God's love in the midst of this congregation. Amen. You are the underneath, the all around, leading onward. May we surround one another as we sing out, as those who know the joy of eternal hope in Christ. His love will lead us homeward. Let's look back at our text in Revelation and cover the last point this morning. I'm going to start in verse 4. Let me give you a second here. Again, we see John describing a group with rich symbolism. In verse 4, it says this, referring to the 144,000. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouths no lie was found, for they are blameless. So the next point is the character of the redeemed matches the character of the Lamb. The character of the redeemed matches the character of the Lamb. He says the 144,000 are those that have not defiled themselves with women because they are virgins. And as the father of three very immaculately conceived children, I'm thankful that John doesn't mean this in a literal sense. Remember, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as God's bride, and Israel is referenced as prostituting herself to foreign gods. We see this very explicitly, especially in the book of Hosea. We also see Babylon portrayed as a harlot in the coming section of Revelation, who caused all nations to commit immorality. This language of sexual impurity is meant figuratively to describe any nation or group who have decided to worship other gods and oppose God. And this is contrasted to what we see in the New Testament, where the church is labeled as the bride of Christ. The letter to the Ephesian church picks up on this theme in several spots, especially in chapter 5. If you want to turn there, we'll look at this together. Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 25 and go through 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, the true church is presented to Christ, by Christ's own work, as one holy, without spot or blemish. In other words, Jesus does all of the work in purifying us, laying down his life for us, providing for us, so that he can present us back to himself as pure and undefiled. This text helps us to see what is meant by virginity in this context, that the church has been washed by Christ, and has continued to follow him as king. Now, this doesn't mean perfection by any means, but it does mean submitting to Christ's rule in our lives. 
Brothers and sisters, have you submitted to Christ's rule in your life? Have you allowed yourself to be washed by the blood of the Lamb and the Word? And this flows neatly into what comes next in verse 4. Jumping back to Revelation, it says, It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The implication here is that the redeemed people are with Christ, and they obey His every command. It is these who have responded to Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty nine. I love that Bud quoted it yesterday at our meeting. And this is from the FNV translation. I love how it translates this thought. It says, Follow my teachings and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest from your troubled thoughts. Walk side by side with me, and I will share in your heavy load and make it light. You see, God's people long to be close to their good shepherd. It makes sense then that these redeemed people follow their shepherd. These have taken the yoke of Christ, and they have adopted the characteristics of the Lamb. We could spend hours talking about the character of Christ, but I want to highlight for us just a few aspects of his character that he says his disciples should emulate. If we turn to Matthew 5, we see Jesus describing what his disciples should be acting like. Matthew chapter 5, you guys are undoubtedly familiar with this section. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. These are the people that are following him. And he says to his followers, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ's followers know that there is nothing inside them that can save themselves. They renounce all human efforts and striving towards justification and accept that only Jesus' blood and the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit can save. He says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Christ's followers are not overcome by sorrow and grief. They turn to their good shepherd and stand firm on the promise of an eternity spent in safety and security with him. They do not put on false happiness as a shield but they recognize the brokenness in the world and the relationships around them, and they are sad because of it. But they refuse to be conquered by their sadness and depression. Rather, they allow it to drive them into the loving arms of their Savior. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Christ followers know that as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, they have access to the power that has already defeated our great enemy, sin and death. But they do not wield this power to shame the world around them. They humbly submit to the rule of Christ and speak the truth in love to the world around them. They patiently endure derision, accusation, and ridicule from all sides and graciously keep proclaiming the beauty of the gospel to a lost and dying world. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Christ's followers desire to be growing in sanctification and in their knowledge of their king. They want their lives to be a living sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to their king. They shall be satisfied because they are drinking living water. They will never thirst again. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Christ followers are quick to forgive because they know they have been forgiven much. They have compassion on the lost as they seek them out to proclaim the good news of the gospel to them, even those who are far away, and even those they are closest to. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Christ followers have renounced Satan and all of his works and ways, and have given their lives over to the rule of the Lamb. They understand that it is only by a childlike faith in the saving work of Jesus that they can be saved. They put their hope in God's promises and daily meditate on his word. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus' followers are quick to give up their rights for revenge and pursue reconciliation. And as far as it is dependent upon them, they live peaceably with all. They seek unity around the gospel, even at great personal cost. They partner with Christ in being ministers of reconciliation in a world full of anger and hate. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ's followers know that in this life they will face trials and tribulations, but they can take heart, for Christ has overcome the world. 
They do not seek confrontation, but they stand firm on the truth of the gospel, and they face the consequences of that action head on. They know that an everlasting kingdom, Mount Zion, awaits them if they remain faithful. You see, following the Lamb wherever He goes means walking in the things He has blessed. Being citizens of a heavenly kingdom means doing the things that the King has endorsed and commissioned. It also means that we follow Him even unto death if necessary. Even as we have seen the saints crying out in Revelation 5 and 6. These things, the Beatitudes... Jesus used to describe his followers, but they can also readily apply to himself. Jesus was poor in spirit. He trusted the Father's will above his own. He mourned. We saw this in the Passion Narrative on Good Friday. He was meek. Even though he was God, he used his power to serve, not to be served. He hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Even at a young age, he was immersed in the Scriptures, and his only goal was to do the Father's will. He was pure in heart. He was the only man to live a perfect, sinless life, perfectly faithful to God and in perfect relationship with creation. He was a peacemaker. He paved the way for humanity to be reconciled to God. He himself is our peace, the perfect spotless lamb. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He was rejected by the world because he spoke truly about the gospel, and he was unjustly put to death as a common criminal. You see, following the Lamb wherever He goes means we are becoming more and more like the Lamb. And I would be remiss if I didn't quote one of my favorite passages here to some. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me? So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, may we have this mind among ourselves to love and serve one another, that God may be glorified in Christ. God has given Jesus the name the authority that is above any other name or authority. And when he arrives back on Mount Zion with all his redeemed, everyone will bend the knee and confess that he is Lord. And so these saints that we see here in Revelation 14 are undefiled. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They are the first fruits of the redeemed. They are true and blameless. And we see at the end of verse 4 and verse 5 in Revelation the continuation of the call for the redeemed to imitate the character of the Lamb. Now, I, I would love to have time to unpack this even more, but I'm going to give you guys some passages to study on your own. Isaiah 53, Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20, and 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. They're up on the slide there for you. And all of these passages speak about the endurance of Christ through suffering and injustice to bring about reconciliation of people to God for his ultimate glory. Brothers and sisters, as we continue on in this life, the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we living in a way that makes the name of God and of the Lamb great and glorious 
Are we living in a way that makes the name of God and of the Lamb great and glorious? Are we living in a way that shows the world around us the truth of the gospel? That we, those sinners, have been saved by the precious blood of the Lamb only by His grace and not our own doing? Do we model integrity and truthfulness in a way that demonstrates the love of the Father and the sacrificial love of Jesus? The 144,000 in Revelation are contrasted with the religious elite of Jesus' day. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is important to see there is right at the end. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Pharisees had created a false gospel out of their religious traditions, and the love of God was far from their hearts. But the redeemed saints in Revelation 14, it says no lie was found in their mouths. They had committed the fullness of their hearts to the king, and out of an abundance of love and peace, they were able to only speak truth, the truth of the gospel. Friends, this has consistently been a challenge to me. When I'm filling up my heart with the truths of God's word, my speech is kind and gracious. It gives hope and encouragement. It delivers difficult truths in ways that lead to repentance and reconciliation, not shame and division. But when I fill my heart with the world, popular cinema, political commentary, golf YouTube, The abundance of that comes out of my mouth as well. My speech can be harsh and cynical, cutting, defensive, rude. It can cause divides in relationships. It can bring shame on people. Brothers and sisters, when James wrote that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect, he is really commenting on the state of our hearts. If a person sets their heart on Christ and his message of redemption, he is perfect. Not in a sense of never sinning, but in a sense of walking closer and closer to the fullness of who Christ created us to be. Friends, may our hearts be so full of the truths of God's word that the overflow of our mouths reflect our allegiance to our king only, not any other master. Mission Fellowship, we exist in the church age. We see God at work in us and through us by his spirit. But the fullness of Christ's rule and reign is not yet complete. It's the here, but not yet. And so I want to leave you with this from Hebrews chapter 12. It's the passage that Lauren read earlier. I want us to think about this as we come to a close. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made its hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, Mission Fellowship, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Mission Fellowship, 
Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, may we now offer ourselves as living sacrifices in humble service to our God and King. Let's pray together. Father, as we just read, may we not refuse you who are speaking to us through your word. May we have ears to hear and hearts to respond to your gospel this morning. It is indeed good news that you have given Jesus authority to rule and reign over your people because he is perfect. May we humbly accept the gift that we have been given through the sacrifice of your son on the cross. And may we walk in obedience to you. We pray that we heed the correction of the Holy Spirit and that we would be create courageous in proclaiming your gospel. You have given us the song of redemption, and may our lives sing loudly of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.